Wanderlust, boredom, frustration, whatever the reason, we have all had days where we wished we could just pack our bags and take off. But for a myriad of reasons, spouse, kids, jobs, responsibilities, heck, we just don't. Last year, we followed the cares a family who sold their home and loaded their kids in a motorhome and headed out to visit 50 states in 52 weeks. They left their daily lives, the grind, and created an unusual storyline. Well, today I'm speaking with another family, this one from New York City, who took their five children, cast off convention and loaded up a sailboat for a year at sea with just their family. Eric and Emily Orton recently published their book, Seven at Sea. The book takes us along for the ride of joys, challenges, and concrete issues like financing and schooling, learning how to sail. But most important, and the thing I like best, is that it reminds us that our lives are what we make them. We write our story plot lines, and we have far more freedom in our creative writing than most of us allow ourselves. Today, I want to talk to the Ortons about their adventures, but also about how one finds the guts to think outside the box and write crazy plot lines with oodles of meaning and excitement. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Eric Orton worked a temp job, night shift, in a cubicle in Manhattan to help provide for his wife and their five children, the youngest with Down syndrome. Eric watched the sailboats on the Hudson River during his breaks and dared to dream that life could be more than just surviving. Despite having no sailing experience, his wife Emily's phobia of deep water, and already being financially stretched, the family of seven turned their excuses into reasons and their fears into motivation as they set off on a voyage that ultimately took them 5,000 miles from New York to the Caribbean and back. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast, Eric and Emily. Let's get your story. Hey, thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to talk with you today. First of all, let's go to who were Eric and Emily pre-trip, Eric and Emily, so we can set the stage with your characters. Who are you and who was your family? What were you like? I guess if you go back to the beginning where we started sailing, Lily was a newborn mm-hmm. and our oldest daughter was 11. I had my business fail. I'd produced a show off Broadway and that had kind of gone south. And it was really, for me, very discouraging. We were treading water professionally. I think we were in a good place as a family. But speaking for myself, I think I really wanted to do something that just sort of, that was within my control, something where I wasn't trying to rely on other people because I'd had an experience that impacted a lot of people, myself, my family. And I wanted to just do something that was kind of, I guess, proving myself to myself again, maybe. So we back up just a little because I didn't give them any background on who you were, what you do, your screenwriting, that type of thing. And also that Emily was like homeschooling the kids, staying at home. Can you give us just a little bit of that kind of thing so they understand where you're coming from? So I had produced a show off Broadway and it had opened and closed quickly. 
Um, just as our son was being born, he was born the day after the show opened. And anyway, it was a real financial setback for me, a professional blow to my pride, I guess. So for me, I kind of went into hibernation and I had this job where I just anonymously worked at nights, making money and trying to do creative projects during the day and kind of retreated from a lot of the things that I was accustomed to doing. And Emily was at home with the kids. Were we homeschooling at that time? We were about to. We were just getting ready to start homeschooling, I think. I was home with the kids uh, while Eric was working in Broadway. And then he switched, obviously, because we had five children. He wanted to keep an income flowing. And I really appreciated that and his support of my desire to stay at home at that throughout and at that time, especially. Yeah, he started working the temp job right after our fourth child was born. And then he was still there when our fifth child was born, Lily. And she was about six months old. We learned that she had Down syndrome. And we started homeschooling when I was still expecting her. That was still a pretty new journey for us. And then to throw into that, this new diagnosis and what all that was going to mean for the whole family. I felt like we had a strong community and we had good friends, but there was a lot of vulnerability and we were just in this different space learning how to adapt our family to the needs of our family as it presented and as it unfolded. So that's kind of where we were. Well, five kids and homeschooling them. I have two children and I was always so excited for them to go to school for a couple of reasons. One, because I felt like the teachers knew more than I did and could give them a broader look at life and things that I didn't know. And so it would expand their horizons, but also because it's just nice for them to go to school, right? Like you get get some of your free time back. So I can't imagine five children and having them with you 24-7 where you just, does that overwhelm you? I felt really overwhelmed by the whole idea when my daughter brought it to me and said, mom, will you homeschool me? I had certified as a public school teacher and I was like, I don't really want to do that, but I do want to listen to my kids. And, you know, I pursued her question and I went and visited in the school and I talked with the administrators and some of the other teachers and she was floating. I mean, she was getting straight A's, um, but she wasn't being challenged. And some of the other teachers brought up that question to me. And I guess what for me, it came down to having all the reasons why it wasn't going to work and then trying to set those aside and think about how it could work. And for me, God is part of my journey. So that was a question that I grappled with in prayer. And I just kept having these good feelings about how our family could thrive. And I think it wasn't until we wrote this book that we realized that the decision to homeschool was really the turning point for everything in our lives. Because yes, we took on that responsibility, but the opposite side of that coin is autonomy. So we had so much autonomy in our lives and We really loved being with our children. All the things you're saying are true. It's so great for them to go out with other people and other experiences and and even just the practical sense of them being elsewhere for a little while. That is one of the trade-offs. But having that autonomy is sort of what launched us into looking outside of the school calendar for things we wanted to do as a family. And it started with little sabbaticals, a little two-week trip in the middle of September when an opportunity presents itself or things like that. And Eric continued to work on his creative things during the day, which I loved and totally supported. And he had an opportunity to turn one of his shows into a made for TV. And because we were homeschooling, we said, great, let's take the whole family and we'll go for six or eight weeks, whatever it is to film. 
I think it's just started to become, we started to build our own template and we didn't plan that out in advance. But as we did it, we realized, oh, this feels like cheating. Like this feels good. This feels like, why are we, you know, on vacation while everyone else is in school? Then sometimes it's the reverse. They're all in school and we're, they're all out of school and we're in school. But, you know, we just started sinking or maybe like leaning into that more. And and the, the trips kept getting longer as we sort of built up to what ultimately became this big trip on the boat. I love this. And that's great background. You know, Van Gogh said, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. And when you're looking at a storyline, particularly when you're looking at it in hindsight, and you can see all of those little things that transition and lead to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And you don't necessarily know what they are when you're living that story, but you can actively try to create ones. I think key for me, though, is not feeling like every move has to be a big move, like little steps just lead to the next thing. And you've done a great job of illustrating that. That's very cool. Just as an example of that, we were not sailing people. I didn't grow up sailing. Emily didn't grow up sailing. And it very much felt like a distant Thing that was what other people did. There was a strong cultural divide between us and people who sailed. But I had this job downtown on the river and I would see these sailboats and there was a sailing school right downstairs. And I thought sailing looked so beautiful and I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to try it. But yet stepping into that little floating dock building that was the sailing school just felt like that was for other people. But after talking about it with Emily and just saying, wouldn't this be fun to try? And she encouraged me taking that one little step into the sailing school and just asking, you know, how does this work? What can you tell me? That was an example of those small steps that you're talking about where one thing led to another and, you know, down the path we went. I think that there were very few high stakes, big, dramatic moments in this whole process because it was all very incremental and sort of two steps forward, one step back, trial and error. There were no sudden dramatic moves. Pretty soon you just find yourself in the Caribbean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's how it works. Well, here we are. (laughs) So as I was reading your book, Seven at Sea, you were journaling your journey of learning how to sail. And I've sailed a couple times and I just get seasick. So the whole time I'm reading this, it's sounding really miserable to me. <laughs> but you were sharing how some of your family was seasick and having to, you know, wrangle all the kids in and teach them all how. Definitely step by step by step. But I was really impressed with your consistency. You must have really been dedicated to this because, you know, after I take my kids out and we have a rough time of doing something, it's like, yeah, let's not do that again. But uh-huh. you kept persisting in teaching and taking them out. And, you know, guy, I, I admire that, but it, it also shows a real dedication to that forward movement despite obstacles and despite other people, you know, despite everybody not being super excited about it. Tell me about that. Well, I like something that you're pointing out about the consistency. I mean, Eric was just talking about overcoming that sort of threshold of this isn't for me and being willing to just ask the question, that idea, like it doesn't hurt to ask, to just gather a little bit of information. And then I think this would be like the next step is just because you hit that first obstacle doesn't mean it's over. Like, (laughs) guess that's not going to work for me type thing. And I know when we first started sailing, Eric and the girls all got really 
seasick on the first day. I'm like, when is this lesson going to be over? And I didn't get sick. So I thought, great, like I'm the natural here. And that all changed later. In the end, we all got sick. But what Eric said was, you know, but they have ginger and they have wristbands and they have patches and like there's solutions for these problems like just because I felt miserable doesn't mean I, we have to give up this idea and you know sometimes we were able to find solutions like keeping our eye on the horizon on the nearby land playing music having a dance party distracting ourselves but sometimes we just got sick and we just felt that way for a couple of days but there were a lot of days that we got to have this amazing adventure. And I think, anyway, I just think it was worth some of those hard moments, those feeling sick moments or those failing moments. I wouldn't want to have, you know, given up all the goodness that we got out of it just for that fraction of time that was spent being miserable. I think there's always going to be some part of it that's miserable, no matter what your story is. Right? Yeah. Okay. So we talk about this when we're talking about the archetypes in story. And one of them is the threshold guardian. And the threshold guardians pop up throughout all the hero's story to stand in front of them and challenge them at the crossroads to find out if the hero of the story actually wants badly enough what they're trying to get. So it's the troll on the bridge that's blocking the billy goat scruff, right? How bad do you want to get across the bridge? So there's always going to be in any story that's worth creating and moving forward, there are going to be those threshold guardians. So, you know, I think it's very realistic to point out that there's going to be resistance to things in the stories and that's to be expected. On that point, for me, I would say safe sickness was the troll. It was definitely a threshold guardian because I get super seasick. And I have to chuckle a little bit every time, you know, we talk with people and this comes up often and they say, oh, I could never do something like that. I get seasick. And I'm just like, well, most people that live on boats do. And so they just choose to roll with it. And so I think one thing that has served us well is just to, we manage our expectations. No matter how cool, fun, or exciting something is that we are trying to undertake, we just expect that there's going to be some a certain amount of misery involved. <laughs> How very realistic of you. <laughs> and, 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 if, and if there is a misery, then we're delightfully surprised, but we just expect that there will always be five to 10% misery for anything that we re that's really satisfying and worth doing. So there was a survey of the happiest people on the planet and Denmark <laughs> were the happiest people. You're familiar with this one? <laughs> We know this study because their expectations for life are so low. Right, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to your thunder there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. We're reading the same books. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to speak to that threshold guardian and kind of what helps us get past those thresholds. And I think in this case in particular, it was really nice that we had each other and our family because Eric would be all gung-ho and excited and then something might come up that really gave him the willies and I would say, no, no, we can do this, we got this and kind of like extend the vision, like this will be great. And actually, this is in our book, but one day we were talking about it and being excited and making our plans and our daughter, oldest, who was then 14, said, do you guys really have the guts to do this? And she kind of held our feet to the coals. So at first we sort of brought them along and tried to build consensus, bring them into the dream, the vision, the story, if you will. And they got on board and then they started giving us grief and saying like, are we gonna do this? Are we not gonna do this? Are we just gonna talk about it? Or is something gonna happen? And so I think because we were dreaming as a whole family, whenever one of the links was weak, I guess the other ones were like, 
Sure. That's super neat. You guys seem like you make a really good team supporting each other in lots of ways. As I was reading the book and Emily supporting Eric's dreams and Eric rallying everybody to go do something. And then, like you said, your kids dreaming together. It's beautiful to see that kind of teamwork. And we need the examples of that because really, that's how we're most effective. We're so much stronger when we have you know, two instead of one or seven instead of two, you know, it's great to see the example. So people know it's being done and how to do it. One of the proverbs that we love is, uh, it's an Aboriginal proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm, That's beautiful. We try to hang together as much as possible. I like (laughs) that. Sometimes we drive each other crazy. Hey, that's part of the story. That's part of the fun, part of the adventure building, right? Yeah. For us, it has been. I think it is for everybody. You know, I was referred to the cares, Lindsay and Matt Care, that we followed last year in their motorhome as they went around the country. And one thing I noticed about them also was how well they worked together as a team, as husband and wife, but also how much they had to learn to compromise and work with the kids and do this whole teamwork thing where everybody has a say and, you know, and everybody's supportive. And they were also very realistic about the things they were facing living in this small space together and and the things that they learned and what worked and what didn't work. And it's just a jumble of reality. You know, it, it's not, as you well know, it's not all peaches and cream because you head out on an adventure. It's real life learning how to navigate the spaces emotionally as well as physically and relationship-wise. But I imagine you guys grew together as a family in almost just unimaginable ways because you went through hard things and fun things working together. that was definitely one of our goals in heading out was to see if we could create some memories that would help strengthen us, give us that common point of reference as a family to work together as a family. And we already live in a two bedroom, one bathroom apartment in New York City. So that's seven people getting along. And now we moved into this even smaller situation where all of our resources had to be tracked and You know, we had to make sure we had enough water or electricity, things like that, that our batteries were topped up. And we were living in this small space and sometimes under really straining circumstances. And I know as a couple, we sometimes felt like there wasn't anywhere that we had privacy. The kids are knocking on the hatch over our head in the morning or coming to the doors. And there's nowhere that you're far away from the other people in your family. Just to have a private conversation, let alone. (laughs) Yeah. And I know one time we tried, like, let's, there's a little, like, we have the big boat that we're living on and then a little dinghy with an outboard motor for getting back and forth to shore. And one time we just put a really long rope out to the dinghy, it's called a a painter line, and we sat in the dinghy and just had it, like, attached to the boat trying to have a private conversation and the kids were not having it. Like, one or two of them at least was standing on the back of the boat just, Shouting at us. (laughs) And that was a real struggle. And we talk about it in this in this book as well. And, and I think also dealing with the kids, they're a pretty agreeable bunch. And I really appreciate that. But I learned about something called caregiver fatigue on this journey where whether it's just my perception or the reality, I really felt like I was taking on the care of our youngest daughter, Lily, who has Down syndrome and gets really stubborn and doesn't have the same muscle tone as the other kids and didn't always want to go on the hikes or she wanted to pick up every little thing along the way. And and for me, I thought, well, I'm here for the first time ever in my life and I also want to hike a volcano. 
you know, that sounds like something I want to do. And yet here I am with this kid who just wants to sit in a dirt path and throw pebbles. And I am not always really mature about how I handle that frustration. So I just like was making, I think, sarcastic comments or just expressing my anger through like, you know, sharp, nobody cares or, you know, that kind of comment. And, and then later, Eric, so great. He just wants to hear it all. He's like, let it out. You have to get out the poison first, whatever. And I just expressed all of my frustrations and overwhelm and how I wanted it to be fun for me as well and not just always be the chaperone. And so this is where that working together comes in and we talked about how we can trade off. I, mean, I won't do every experience, but we can trade off experiences and both have a good time and support each other. And I knew when I did go on you know, my hikes, I couldn't wait to come and share it with Eric, and I knew that him sacrificing to stay behind was making that possible for me. So it was a way that we could, I guess, show our love for each other by taking turns taking care of our family. <laughs> love that. Love, it takes teamwork, especially with a family of that size. So Eric, you're the storyteller, you're the writer, the screenplay producer here. Tell me the story of this trip. Like you guys hopped in a sailboat and, you know, of course it wasn't just hopping in and, you know, lots of things leading up to it. But what was this like sailing from New York to the Caribbean? You were out in the boat for a year? We both wrote this book and I think we're both storytellers. But yeah, I guess, you know, I've spent some time dedicated to this. I mean, it was really, I feel like I personally went on a hero's journey. I feel like I left home and went on a trip that transformed me. Like Emily was saying, I feel like it galvanized our family. And I think as soon as we got on the boat, and this is classic screenplay, like you can't make this stuff up. We just got there and I was like, oh my goodness, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. I, we had crossed the Rubicon. The die had been cast. We had, you know, we'd sublet our apartment. I'd quit my job. We'd bought the boat. We were in the Caribbean and I was like, oh my goodness, this is this was a mistake. And I think many people who are on a journey feel that way. And yet, whether you turn around and come home or not, at that point, determines whether you're going to... Get the magic elixir. Thank you. Whether you're going to get the magic elixir or not. And we would sit there and just look at the planes taking off from this island where we were anchored in St. Martin and kind of wish we were on the plane going home, lamenting what we had done to ourselves. But all that said, it's this beautiful blend of obstacles and setbacks and reversals, breakthroughs and surprises and people coming out of nowhere to help you. You know, over the weeks that turned into months, we were constantly surprised by these turns of tragedy and triumph, I guess. And I don't want to spoil the book for anybody who might want to pick it up and read it, but I feel like in the end... We And I know you, you may not have gotten this far in the book. We were completely turned around. We were shut down. And we just thought, is this how our story ends? If this story was a movie, what would we do here? And we did the thing that to us made no logical sense, but was the right thing for a story. And I'm so glad we did it. I won't tell you what we did, but oh. I'm, just so, I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad we did it. And now we can look back on this and we feel like it ended just right. It ended like, you know, roll the credits. It, uh, it ended our terms. Yeah. How often do you do this where you look at your life and say, if this was a film, if this was a story, if, if this was a book, how would I want this to play out? What's the next scene and how should it play out? How often do you do that? 
I would say that we do it almost as often as we feel scared. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good answer. I think that there are probably one to two times a year for me where I'm like big decisions. Like if I were in a movie of my life, what would I do? And it usually ends up being the scarier of whatever options are on the table. And I hate that. But so far, I have yet to be disappointed. I would never say that taking that road or making that choice has ever been easy, but it has always been worth it. Well said. Wow. So, Emily, what is the thing that you have learned most from this adventure? Oh, wow. I know this one. As we were going on this journey and we had that huge learning curve all the way there, and then it feels like when we got to the Caribbean, the the learning curve just straightened right out and became vertical, just like a ladder. We had to climb straight up and it felt so hard, but we made some friends and we got more experienced at what we were doing. And as we were heading towards home, uh, we knew we were heading that direction to New York. I was talking to the kids about this and what they had learned about it. And our oldest, I asked how she'd changed. And she said, well, I don't really think I did change. I think I became more myself. Mm. And I think that was the best answer. But I would say for me, three takeaways, I call it the three kinds of confidence. And I started out very worried. Obviously, I had the fear of deep water, but I was constantly concerned for the safety of the kids and you know, that every day, what, what are we going to eat? What are we learning? How is everyone's emotional needs being taken care of? And I learned I was the emotional touchstone for the whole family. So no wonder I felt that sort of responsibility and concern. But as we came towards the end of the journey, I found myself more myself as someone who I felt credible because I had done the things that I said I would do. So I trusted myself more. I felt more competent and I'm the worst sailor still in our family, but I was a lot better than when I started. So I had to develop new skills. I knew how to handle when we come to a new island. I knew how to provision for the family. I knew how to help in a storm, things like that. And because we realized as we went from island to island, repeating this, learning about a new place, figuring out how to get what we need, making friends so frequently, it started to calm me down because I realized I don't know where the grocery store is but I believe that food is available on an island that is populated and we will find it. You know, so it was those three. It was the credibility, the competence, and this that sense of calm, which I think like as far as how it influences my whole life, the sense of calm is probably the most dramatic, ironically, because it's easy to want to have control and instead we just have to be curious and like, oh, I wonder how we're going to figure this out. That's fantastic growth. And, you know, growth in the sense of you as a person understanding and caring and trusting yourself. I love that. But also the the peace comes into a, a trusting life, right? Trusting faith, trusting the universe, trusting God, knowing, having that. I think that sense of peace really comes from a space of faith. When you have faith that you will be able to solve a problem and that you will be taken care of and that there is a way to do that. And it comes down to faith versus fear. And that's a lovely skill set to have sort of pinned down. I think it takes a lot of stamina. Like it's something you can develop like a muscle. It can be small at first and get bigger. And I feel like, yeah, that muscle got a lot stronger on this journey. (laughs) 
I think our comfort with uncertainty went up to the same degree that we had the steep learning curve at the beginning. And corollary to that, I think our ability to deal with uncertainty went up just as fast. Because like Emily said, as we developed that skill and that ability, we were able to relax into uncertainty. And like you're saying, we became, we were able to have faith that things would work out. And the way that we've come to describe it is we just now, we can trust, we trust that things will emerge. We will not know all the answers when we begin, and that's okay. I mean, I guess the concrete example for me that comes to mind is when we were crossing from Puerto Rico to the Bahamas, and there were so many variables, uncertainty over the weather. We'd never done a crossing this big before in our lives, ever. It was 500 miles. If something went wrong, our ditch plan was to go to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. That was the nearest, you know. So, you know, we felt like the stakes were high. And as we got there closer to the Bahamas, we ran into obstacles. There were, and you know, and again, this is covered in depth in the book, but we, we ended up running short on fuel. There was no wind. There was weather we weren't expecting. There was sheet lightning, all kinds of things that we didn't feel prepared for. But as those challenges arose, we learned how to deal with them. As you stockpile a catalog of challenges that you've dealt with and, and, and overcome and sorted out, like Emily said, your confidence goes way up and you just trust that, okay, I don't know what the answers are going to be. I don't know what the questions are going to be, but I trust that I can figure out the answer. I trust that I can find the solution. And once you are willing to make your way into the world comfortable with that level of uncertainty, first of all, a lot of things open up to you and you just enjoy life more. I think that for us was the biggest thing that has let us enjoy life during that experience and since then, because we just, I think we worry a lot less. What do we say? We're, we wonder instead of worry. How's it going to turn out? I totally love that because it's just such a powerful way to live. That's beautiful, you guys. I think as we're having this conversation, it's actually making me realize this journey about how our relationship with uncertainty because we've taken on a lot of challenges prior to this one. Eric took on like projects, jobs, creative endeavors. And I remember him one day saying, when is the uncertainty going to end? And I took a red pen and I put up on the marker (laughs) in that red pen on our calendar, end of uncertainty. Like this will be the last day that we experience uncertainty in our life. And it was kind of a joke because we could see how ridiculous it was. Like we all wanted to end. But it's um, not ever going to end. So it was just funny to have it up there like, oh, after this day, we'll know the answers to everything. The and how of, everything the plays of the month, out. It's and, over and- yeah. And it was kind of like a joke just dealing with it that way. But then what you're saying now is, yeah, like uncertainty hasn't ended, but we're just cool with it now. Your ability to deal with it. And I love that because you brought up a couple of things which actually are so powerful. Your ability to deal with uncertainty which is completely linked to your ability to have faith and believe and choose that focus rather than fear. And those are so, so linked together, but so powerful and being able to create anything. And like you said, Eric, being able to enjoy it, right? There's a lot more joy when you're not bound up in fear all the time. Well, Eric asks a great question. I don't actually know who started it between us, but we always look at here's the negative sides of what could happen. And we started asking what could go right. And that becomes a touchstone question. It's not hard. Like we never forget about what could go wrong. That's always there. But we deliberately ask that, like what could go right? And I love that. 
there's like an endless possibility of things that could go right. And okay. often they do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's so positive too. I think there's also a little bit of law of attraction there when you're focusing on what could go right and creating that as a possibility in your mind that it starts to create that energy around it. For sure. I think yeah. that's true. So Emily, you write and speak about living with purpose and Eric, you are big on living deliberately, right? So the same concept. Tell us a little bit as we wind up this conversation, what would you say to people who are feeling stuck or who are looking for ways of living on purpose? And since you talk and write about this, Emily, you've probably got a big, long speech. Tell us about what you teach and preach about this concept. Okay, I don't have a big, long speech. It's actually just like a really simple idea that sort of guides me, which is that I think we all have something that we wish for or these interests in our heart. And to me, those are a form of personal revelation. And there's a lot of things covering that. You know, there's usually a lot of other things on top of it, whether it's fears or responsibilities or to-do lists or, you know, whatever it might be. And I feel like honoring those, recognizing those as maybe the gift that we have to offer the world, the thing that's unique about us that makes our story so special and why, you know, or I guess to your listeners, why you're so important and why we need you and why we need your stories and why we need you living as the protagonist in your own life because you can make the world a better place when you are willing to uncover those interests and those wishes and reveal to us who you really are through your actions and your words and what you share. I couldn't agree more. In fact, one of the things that I'm often talking about is how you can kind of determine your own personal destiny by tuning in to what you're drawn to and what you love and where you find your bliss and and the things that either talents or skills, but also just areas of life and living that you are drawn to. I, I too feel like that's just a space of personal revelation of this is the direction you're supposed to go in. Follow what feels right. Sometimes I'm learning that it hides as a fear. This is something that I'm discovering because when I was a little girl, one of my biggest fears is that I would never leave my small town or that I would never leave my landlocked state. And it seems like a weird thing for a nine-year-old to be so cut up about. But my grandmother took me on a journey to visit my cousins in the neighboring state and then drove through a third state just for like 15 minutes so that I would be relieved of that pressure of never leaving the state. And then my dad ended up getting stationed at the Pentagon. I lived in the DC area. We've now not only done this sailing trip, but road trips between Canada and the US. We just got back from five months taking a van around Europe. You know, I realized what I thought, like, I'm so afraid that this will never happen in my life. If I flip that on the other side, I could say like, oh, this is what I want to have happen in my life. And I didn't recognize it as that, but it was masquerading as like, yeah, on the negative side, this thing I was afraid would never happen. So if there's something that you're like, oh man, this thing's never going to happen in my life, that might be the thing that you want to be like, this must happen. This deserves attention, resources, space, like this has to happen or my heart will not be happy. (laughs) That's super interesting. I love that. Eric, your parting words on this idea of living deliberately. I think that oftentimes we feel like we don't have control of our lives, like somebody else is actually in the driver's seat of our lives. And I guess the example that comes to mind for me is I had written this show, a musical, and we produced it in New York and I had raised the money to produce it. And one of the investors came into the opening night and we were talking and he said, 
So how did you get into this program where you got to produce a show off Broadway? And I said, nobody asked me to produce this show. And, you know, nobody gave me a theater. I had to write the show and find the theater and raise the money. And so I guess the idea was that you have sometimes to be in control of your life. You're not going to be able to apply to a program that's going to walk you through it. You're not going to be able to get a degree in you. Nobody's going to hand you a template or a guide or a map. Most of the time, it's a lot of figuring it out and taking charge and just creating the opportunities that you want for yourself. And those are going to look very, very different for each person because each person is unique, as you and Emily were just saying. And just this idea that sometimes we want somebody to to hold our hand. And that's okay. I understand that. We need to surround ourselves with people that love us and encourage us because you can't do it without that. But we have to dig real deep and know what we want in life. We have to be able to identify it, speak it out loud in words, write it down. And once we can say it clearly, you know, or even not clearly, but just have an attempt at saying it, then we can bring that idea into reality. And it doesn't have to be something that has ever been done before. It doesn't have to be something that you've seen somebody else make happen. And so I think the infinite potential for creativity amongst all of us is just unstoppable and, and unknowable. And so I can't wait. I get so fired up when other people start to do that in their own lives. Most people don't want to go sail on a boat, and that's okay. We just want people to feel encouraged and capable about doing whatever it is that they want to do. Mm, I love it. Before we leave, will you tell me one juicy story about being out on the boat on this trip of sailing? Um, one that was just a really pivotal story for you. Ooh, that's I, a good question. I kind of want to talk about Sarah Jane. Tell it. That's a good one. Okay, so we were at this place called Thunderball Grotto in the Bahamas. And it's Thunderball Grotto is basically, it's a rock that's completely hollow inside. It's like a dome. And there's a, a hole at the top, and you can swim inside at low tide. And it's just this crystal clear pool of water. It's just like a, if you imagine a sphere that you can swim into, and the top half is empty, and there's a pin kind of hole at the top. It's about 50 feet up. So we swam in as a family and there were some crazy teenagers that were climbing around top and they would jump into this hole and just land in the water that was inside. And my girls thought, oh, this looks cool. And they said, we're going to go. Dad, you want to come? And I was like, oh man. <laughs> now I had to, like my reputation was at stake or something. <laughs> so we climbed up there and it was a bit tricky because the rock coral is super, super sharp. But we got up there and when you get up there, you're in the blazing sun and you look into this hole and you can't see anything. It just looks like a black bottomless pit. We had just been down there and we knew that there was water and we could hear voices and we'd seen people jumping and landing safely, but you literally look like you're just gonna jump into a, a pit that went on forever. And I was like, I can't do this. So I'm going right now, I can't stand it. And I just jumped because I knew that I would lock up if I didn't. And so I jumped and I landed and, and I was safe. And then my daughters were up top and Allison, she took a few minutes and then she finally jumped. And, and then poor Sarah Jane was the last one and she was up there by herself. And again, just because of the sunlight, your eyes dilate and you can't see anything, but we're down below cheering and we're kind of like, we're needing to go because the tide's rising and it's gonna close the entrance. And, and I have um, two little weak swimmers with me, especially their youngest, the six-year-old with Down syndrome. I didn't want to have to put her under, like... Diving underwater. Doing, uh, diving under the water to get out with her, yeah. And so she was up there for five, six, ten minutes. I don't know how long it was, but it, 
finally we're like, Jane, you can do this. We're here, you're gonna be okay. And finally just this little shadow appeared in that pinprick hole and she came down and she hit the water and she came above and she was just so happy that she'd done it. And and I think that for us that became a meaningful thing that no matter what, no matter how sure we are of the situation, we know this is gonna work out. You get in the real situation and it's scary. It's scary to jump. And hopefully you have people in the dark that are down there cheering for you, encouraging you. But it takes guts every time. So we don't want to undersell the fact that it, it does take guts and there's fear involved. But if you can overcome those fears, there's some beautiful stuff on the other side. Oh my gosh, what a great story to end with. <laughs> we couldn't have planned that better. So if people want to get your book, where do they go to find it? You can go to 7 and you can learn about the book, a little bit about us. And it's available in major bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Books book, a Million. Books a Million. It's all, books. All, it's all at 7 and uh, that'll take you to wherever you like to buy books. Okay. And for the listeners, I will have all those links in the show notes. So thank you for being here. Thanks for the discussion today. It's been wonderful to meet you. Our pleasure. It's been great talking to you, Lori. Thank you. I feel like the meaning of today's podcast is about customizing our own lives. Your challenge this week is to consider what excuses you've let get in your way of writing some really great scenes into your life story. What are those excuses? And what creative way could you get around them if you really wanted to? Consider it. Thanks for joining us today on the Love Your Story podcast. Share this episode or another favorite episode with a friend. Share the love, people. Share the love and live big, bold, and on purpose because you can. You've got this. Don't forget loveyourstorypodcast.com for t-shirts, for the 21 Life Connection Challenges book, which is new this year, super exciting, to sign up for coaching, and just to listen to all the past episodes of the podcast. It's a super good resource. Have a great week, and we will see you next week on the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast. Podcast.